Welcome to the Partnernomics Show, where industry thought leaders discuss the hottest topics in partnerships, ecosystems, and innovation. The Partnernomics Show is brought to you by IOLite Solutions, a product incubator specific to Salesforce. Now here's the host of the Partnernomics Show, Mark Brigman. Welcome back to another episode of the Partnernomics Show. It's good to be with you again today. We've got a special guest, uh, man, digging into some, some fun and a little bit of a different twist of topics, looking at product development and innovation of solutions. One of the topics near and dear to my heart that I love so much, but Andy Cruza. Andy, what's going on, buddy? Hey, how's it going, everyone? Um, well, I'm not that special. I'm just a regular guy here. <laughs> I don't know oh. about that. Well, the next 30 minutes will tell, man. We'll 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 be the judge of that. But Andy, Andy is the uh, marketing lead at Nacho Nacho. And so Andy and I had a chance to meet a couple months back. I really enjoyed getting to get to know him, having some conversations, seeing the cool stuff that that they're doing. But yeah, appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day to uh, chat with us. Yeah, likewise. I know you guys are building quite the uh, partner network over there and, you know, excited to be working with you guys directly as well, too. Um, you know, everybody stay tuned for the type of work that uh, Partnernomics and Nacho Nacho are going to be doing. Uh, more coming on that soon. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a marketing lead at Nacho Nacho. Um, I've been an entrepreneur for my whole life. Um, now I'm the head of marketing over here at this company. Um, you know, one of my core aspirations to work with uh, Nacho Nacho was to, you know, work with founders and a lot of people that were like me. Uh, so to be able to help them grow their businesses and be a kind of a conduit for them uh, to give them the the resources and connections they need to be successful. So it's been a really fun role over here. I get to work with a lot of great people like Mark and you know, many other software companies out there. And you know, I, I like to say I'm a good cop. So I'm, I'm just here to promote people and help their businesses. So it's easy to make friends. <laughs> Well, the world of entrepreneurship, working with entrepreneurs in innovation, man, it's so fun. I mean, Partnernomics is business number six for me. So um, I've, I've taken a couple of battle wounds along the way, but man, it's just a certain breed of people that, uh, you know, that can do this, but it's like, once you, once you have the bug, I mean, you just, you've, you've got it and you're done for, <laughs> you might as well just accept it and uh, build a good network around you. So it's awesome. The work that, that you do, Andy. Yeah, it's really fun to be. In the early stage, especially, you know, or as an entrepreneur, you're, you're really every day is a day in, day out problem solving uh, effort. And that's kind of what makes it fun, right? You're not just like a, uh, for lack of a better word, a monkey, uh, like in a cubicle and some huge company where nobody knows who you are. And you just work on this one thing and they say, don't touch anything else. Um, you know, you get to really be a part of, you know, building something special that really helps people. Um, you know, and that's the key to success with anything entrepreneurial or in startups even. And we'll get into that in a little bit about, you know, getting that product market fit and really, you know, understanding what your customer's needs are and designing a product and experience that really truly actually helps people. And that's, you know, that's the the attraction that gets, you know, entrepreneurs so into it. And even if you fail, you know, at least you're doing it for the right reasons. So, you know, you walk away with some, you know, amazing lessons and even some great stories from it. So I never look at those as a failure. I look at them as an opportunity to learn and and uh, some really cool experiences that come out of it. That's right. You only fail if you stop. It truly <laughs> is an education, right? You just put yeah. it in your pocket and you you keep going and, and try not to make that same mistake again. Well, let me go ahead and get our stopwatch fired up and let's fire away the first question. That is, well, that was a great segue into it. Um, how do we build this product market fit for software products? What are some of the things that we need to kind of think about? Or what are some of those success practices uh, with product market fit? Yeah, the, the question always comes up. And a lot of times, you know, 
what I see with founders is a lot of times they're very excited about the the new mousetrap they created. <laughs> and, you know, they, you know, they're very excited about the new features. Maybe there's a new technology that kind of comes along and they think, you know, that technology is going to be amazing if applied in a certain way. Um, but in reality, you know, if you're not really adding 100x, 10x benefits or cost saving people 10x, you're not, it's not really as exciting of a solution as you would, uh, as you would think. And, you know, a personal story, you know, to kind of explain this situation is I had a failure, actually, <laughs> a company called Spot Survey, um, where we're, we were using SMS delivered surveys, right? And, you know, SMS was kind of becoming popular, but, you know, we were very excited about the, the feature of SMS. And what we ignored was that there was already online surveys and we weren't really, you know, innovating on that too much, right? At the end of the day, we're still sending people to an online survey. And the fact that people are getting it through an SMS wasn't really a big value add for people. It's just a feature uh, for online surveys. Uh, so the key takeaway from that lesson for me was, you know, I didn't really core understand. I, I figured it out along the way, but <laughs> why we failed, but uh, we didn't understand the true customer problem, which was, you know, better online surveys, uh, doing analytics uh, on par with at least what online surveys were doing. And what the real opportunity at that time was with SMS, which we failed to understand until later, um, you know, I even interviewed a founder recently that actually successfully did it. And I like to see people that take ideas that I failed at even and become successful with years later. Um, so what I saw as an opportunity was maybe a 1-800 line, like an SMS quick chat solution to talk to people. And that's where a big value add is, right? It's like a 1-800 line because uh, customers hate calling 1-800 numbers. You just get stuck on the phone. You get stuck in waiting. Time is money. People don't like to do that. And for the businesses, it's huge headcount and overhead costs to be able to manage that. So an SMS for a simple question, which a lot of customers have, was an ideal solution at the time. So that's like a real example of you know how we failed to get product market fit. And to kind of take a step back now, you know to get to get the product market fit, you really have to understand your customer. You really need to understand what is the problem that they have, and that requires a lot of empathy. And a lot of times, if you're just thinking about your feature too much and trying to invent a better mousetrap, are you really solving somebody's problem? And are they really, ex are they, is this a really painful problem where they're just so annoyed, like 1-800 calls? <laughs> Everybody hates them, the companies do, and, and the customers. And so there's this huge delta of pain there that you could solve with a solution with the feature like SMS. Uh, so the product market fit in that scenario was to use SMS, not as a survey delivery tool, but as a chat mechanism. And so I would recommend that to every startup, you know, know your customer, know the problem, look for a really big problem. And even better, if there's a huge market around that too, that's something that you could really build a business around. Uh, second is to, you know, get that MVP going, right? So a lot of people, and I've done this myself before, so I speak from experience. So <laughs> I love it. Um, a lot of people overbuild features and then they go to market and, and then you don't know when you get that market feedback, what features to take away. You've just kind of built this collection of stuff. It's way easier to start with a very simple version of your product, beta test that with a few people, get their feedback early and often. Even if it's bad feedback, that's good feedback because you want you want to know if this connects with people or not. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if your product doesn't connect with people and they're not really excited about it, you're not going to be able to build a business off that. And you're selling, not pulling people in. People want to buy. They don't want to be sold. So if you work early to, to build an MVP, get that in people's hands, get feedback, fine tune it, 
then you could start building upon it and you could start expanding your your go to market strategy and you know that's that's good product market fit right there sound sound advice uh just yesterday i was lucky enough to be a keynote speaker fortunately in Kansas City so i didn't have to travel but for MEA financial for their annual conference and i have this concept i'm sure i didn't come up with it but i always talk about the easy button and really digging in, understanding your customers, not just taking the traditional, which, which you had mentioned is kind of the, the the product out approach of what do we have? How can we add a couple more bells and whistles to it? But also look through the lens of being customer focused, customer centric. What is the job to be done, right? As Clayton Christensen taught us, um, what is the ultimate easy button that the customer wants? And I'd shared yesterday in my message, and I learned this from 13 years of working at Sprint, the customer always wins. Yep. In the end, the customer wins. The question is, how fast does it take them to get to the easy button that they want? And then question number two is, are you going to be the solution or a part of the solution? Or will yep. one of your competitors be that? And that's one thing that I learned the hard way as an entrepreneur and also in my corporate life uh, that customers in the end, they will win because as soon as somebody gives them that easy button they're looking for, they're going to yeah. grab it. <laughs> yeah. And don't overthink it too, right? Just people are at the end of the day, business is about people and helping people. And, you know, that's one of the early things that, you know, I come from a marketing background. So for me, marketing's always been not about selling stuff to people. It's about understanding what their needs are. And then, you know, why I got into product actually was that I didn't want to sell other people's stuff that didn't have product market fit you know, they come to marketers and they say, sell this. And, you know, you can't, right? And, you know, I, I don't believe any marketer should sell something they don't believe in. Yeah, so absolutely. I got into product development for this very reason, because I knew people are at the core of this. And marketing is just a communication channel. It's, you know, communicating in the form of how a product's designed, the entire experience of the product, including onboarding, and then how you bring that out to the market and say, hey, you know, that problem that you have, we created something for it. And yes, I'm talking to the right person here with the right message. So they get it. And then when they come in, they experience your product. It's a smooth, frictionless experience. And that's how you win. And awesome advice. All right. Question number two, uh, what product opportunities exist today for software companies that, that you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been through this, I've been through so many trends over the years and so, you know, I like to say, you know, my experience has lended me really well, <laughs> um, especially those failures, like I love to bring up those stories because they're they always teach you the most, right? Um, so I was part of the social media wave, you know, got got some really good early professional experience there and reputation there. That was, you know, lucky for me to ride that wave. Um, I was very early on the influencer marketing uh, stage as well. Um, you know, saw the opportunity there. I saw that affiliate marketing was taking off, and it only made sense that people wanted, you know, wanted to promote brands for money. Now everybody wants to be an influencer these days. Um, today, I would say, you know, then there's other examples like the metaverse, right? And so when I saw the metaverse come out, I wasn't really too excited about it. And because I didn't see a lot of utility value. Uh, so, you know, for me, and I believe for a lot of other people, uh, the metaverse really makes sense if there's that haptic feedback, that real world kind of feel and experience through some digital experience. Um, but it, it just felt really the technology wasn't quite there. And it was really clunky. And there's a lot of money being dumped in a metaverse, this and that, and a lot of buzz about it. But and ultimately, you know, I saw from this experience that it wasn't really exciting because there wasn't too many practical applications for metaverse. 
Um, now maybe doing like a real estate listing from afar and kind of viewing it, stuff like that makes sense. But, you know, for, for a broad appeal, it didn't make a lot of sense. So getting to today. So AI, a lot of people are saying it's a buzz a buzzword and it definitely is. It comes up in every conversation. Uh, a lot of people say it's a bubble. And unlike the metaverse bubble, I believe that AI is based on what I've seen, you know, maybe two years ago, AI was kind of a buzzword. A lot of people would say they have AI and their product, but it's really just a, a complex algorithm. It wasn't, you know, true AI. It was, that was a buzzword. But with OpenAI and a lot of the innovations that have happened over the last year, AI is definitely here to stay. And it's really shown its its incredible capabilities. And so going forward over the next five years, definitely AI is not, there might be some a little bit of bubble in the market. There's going to be a lot of startups to come out with you know, a spot survey kind of go-to-market approach where they they use AI in a, in a way that doesn't really add a lot of value to people. But I think AI used in the right way for the right business cases can produce a lot of value. And so the entrepreneurs out there that that identify this problem that AI can solve and, you know, and very easily uh, 10x the efficiency of solving that problem or 10x the the cost of it are going to see a, see a lot of success in business. And I think a lot of investors will too. So, um and that's a really hot space right now that I, you know, really want to dive into. Uh, data is another aspect of that too, right? So once again, data and AI play really well together. Uh, so if you're a, a company that has a lot of strong data, you can do a lot with that data when you could bring in these open source AI tools uh, to really understand customer preferences and have a better buying experience, say with Nacho Nacho. Uh, we're bringing, we're collecting a lot of data and we're using AI powered tools to enhance the shopping experience. Why? Because it solves the problem of people finding software <laughs> instead of saying, <clears throat> how do I, you know, how do I get more leads or, you know, how, like I need a software to solve X. And right now it's mostly through word of mouth that a lot of people figure this out. But as we get more buying data from people on our platform, AI has a direct application to actually help more efficiently solve that problem. And there's a lot of opportunities out there for entrepreneurs as well, but uh, with the use of AI, but make sure you're focused on the problem. And is it really 10Xing people's uh, experience or is it going to save 10X on the cost there before you dump a bunch of resources into it and have a cool feature, but no market for it? It seems like, you know, 20 plus years ago when I was in economic school and business school, you we know, were talking about, you know, BI, business intelligence. How do you pour into these lakes of data and glean these insights from it? But now we've hit the next evolution where we're able to use AI uh, yep. to not only to show us information and kind of you know give us these results where the human has to interpret them. Now you have computer systems, AI uh, algorithms looking at, I mean, millions, billions of, of different records and different um, variables that are in there to uh, tell you. Yeah. percentages probabilities you know automatically optimizing so as as an economist geek i'm i'm totally loving what we're seeing um in the in the ai space and as you said it's it's certainly not going anywhere i mean that that is the the future of of technology and of of that of the power that comes with it yeah and pick your winners now you know and, and, and as an entrepreneur starting something or as an investor there's uh, so much opportunity in AI and, you know, you might, you might win some, you lose some, you know, as well, but uh, there's going to be a lot of great companies that come out of this wave. And it's definitely, there might be a bubble in terms of a lot of companies are going to launch that should never have launched and they're going to fail, but there's going to be a lot of companies that are going to be really successful. 
and a lot of entrepreneurs are going to be very successful as well. And to your point about data, um, you know, over the last 10 years, a lot of people are big about data, like you said, and so many companies that I talked to would just collect so much data, but they didn't even know what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> but now with this AI feature coming along, there's actually a lot more you could do with it because the AI can actually do the trend analysis and analytics and do a lot of, a lot of the heavy lifting that uh, companies were ill-equipped to do themselves. Uh, so now the data market, uh, data startup play actually has a lot of a lot of opportunity in it because of the evolution of AI. Yeah, those are just two examples. So, <laughs> all right, question number three: tips for go-to-market. So go-to-market strategies for software companies. What's some of the insights that uh, that you could share with us? Uh, like I said, it's always very important to find you know product market fit. It's all about people at the end of the day. So as a startup, like get feedback from people early, you're in the business of helping people. And so early and often find who your ideal customer is. And even if you're just interviewing them, getting feedback, don't overly try to sell until your product's ready to be bought. <laughs> like they actually want to buy the product until they're asking you, Hey, by the way, can I buy this? Um, too many entrepreneurs are too busy selling their ideas, not listening and building a, a product that's, you know, that people just want to buy. Uh, so go look early and often to find these people that that they might be your ideal customer profile. Maybe during your research and, and conversations, you might find it's a totally different uh, a totally different buyer segment than you actually thought. And so don't be afraid of that either, right? You might have to pivot in the early stage and say, "Wow, these people actually really have a big pain point that my product actually solves better." So maybe I should you know focus on those people instead. Um, focus on MVP. Make the product very simple, easy to use, solve the problem uh, with the, the least time to value and the least friction possible. And what that means is don't create a lot of steps for people to get value out of your product. <laughs> um, show them the value, make it simple, as simple as possible. You could always build more features on top of that than enhance that main product prop value proposition. Uh, but you know, don't go in that direction too fast, too far. Um, you know, a great onboarding experience can't be understated. A lot of people might ask for too much information up front. Uh, they might be too busy trying to focus people on using the features that you want them to use rather than guiding them into the, using those features and actually truly understanding how your product works. And I see a lot of, lot of products fail in the early stage because of that too. Um, a properly onboarded customer, especially if they can do it themselves, uh, consumer products are very good at it. I think a lot of B2B companies can learn from that. A lot of times they think that B2C companies are so different than B2B, but at the end of the day, it's all people that are buying, right? So people like the easy button, like you mentioned, they like low friction. They like to feel good about a product experience. Uh, so keep that in mind when you're designing an early stage product and bringing it out to the market. Andy, I love that piece of advice that you said, I've even, you know, fallen into this trap myself, and that is um, coming out with the MVP. And don't try to, you know, boil the ocean. And like, as as the entrepreneur, you've been thinking about this problem, this issue, this solution that that you're creating. You've been thinking about it potentially for years. Yeah. And you know, your customers that are coming in, they don't have kind of that full understanding that you do. So where you want to give them like the Swiss Army knife that does 15 things for them. Well, your customers, you need to crawl, walk, run with them. And and yeah. a lot of times I've seen where we think that we're going to build the Swiss army knife. We're going to set it out there. And what customers end up seeing is something really complicated. Much, and so yeah. it, it scares them. And so not yeah. only do you spend this extra time, effort, energy building the Swiss army knife when maybe yeah. you only need a couple tools in there, 
to solve those big pain points. <laughs> yeah, and that's enough to get them going, enough to get them started. Yeah. I love that. It's, as soon as you kind of get them in, get them hooked, then they'll they'll ask for the additional yeah. components. All right, Andy, got to question number four for us, and that is around uh, partner-led growth. So, you know, what's the importance of partner-led growth? What are you guys seeing at Nacho Nacho? What's what's some of the recommendations that you would have for entrepreneurs of of how they can leverage PLG? Yep. Yeah. So that's it's become more popular over the last few years, and honestly, it should should have been more popular the entire time because, like I said, everything comes back to people and. There's many other businesses out there that have their own self-interests and, you know, we do as well, right? But there's so many different creative ways to collaborate with each other to where you, you know, both help each other out by cross-promoting each other's networks and everything. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the saying I always use is a, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so that's really at the core of, of partner-led growth. It's a win-win strategy. Um where there's something in it for you and there's something in it for your partners, right? And so, you know, we're big on that over at Nacho Nacho. Obviously, we we work with a lot of sellers and a lot of software companies. And so for us, we do a lot of co-content creation. And when we do that, we're trying to make it win-win-win where we're creating content that's valuable like this, uh, content that's valuable to both our end customers. We do it together and then we both promote it through our own channels. And so now, you know, our partners are exposing us to their audience and we're exposing them to our audience. And so by doing this, you know, over time with a bunch of different partners that we have, we're able to build their business profile and awareness for them and drive sales. And also likewise for us, they're building more awareness for Nacho Nacho. But partner-led growth, you know, like I mentioned, it's it's all about win-win and what's, you know, what's in it for your partners and what's in it for you and how can you make a a strategy that works for both of you guys, not, not a one-way one, a one-sided situation where you say, Hey, you should just promote me. <laughs> Think about what they need and what they want. Right. And you, you don't want to just post an ad for them and you don't want them to just post an ad about you, but like, that's where content uh, interviews like this webinars, joint blog posts, backlinks back and forth there um, is really effective. And it's also valuable to your end consumer. It's not going to turn them off. Uh, so I would look for opportunities like that. Um, Another thing is, you know, sometimes even competitors could be good referral sources. A lot of people might say, well, my competitors, but they're, they're going to know about you anyway. So you might find that there's ways you could actually collaborate with them where, you know, you might serve a certain type of market or have a feature that they don't and vice versa, where if you can't solve a customer problem the best way, you could refer it to them even and vice versa. A lot of these, a lot of these competitors might actually even, you know, refer people to you as well. And eventually a lot of acquisitions and M&As happen that way too, right? You develop a, a really good working relationship with another kind of competitor and they say, you know what, I want to buy you guys or vice versa. So um, don't be afraid to work with competitors either. Yeah, I've seen that happen a ton of times. There's tons of examples. Uh, Steve Jobs famously said back in the day that Microsoft didn't have to lose in order for Apple to win. And that's really when I think he took a shift when he came back as CEO and truly started to take more of a partnering approach, right? And this is when they, you know, started um, building their developer community for all of their mobile apps. It becomes impossible. I mean, they have like over a million apps. There's there's no way to develop all of that in-house, nor would Mm -hmm. you want to, right? You want to be able to 
you know, leverage all of these different networks of of people that have these great ideas and let the market decide, you know, who who gets to win. But I love that. And, and we we teach that a lot of don't overlook, you know, your competitors. I mean, if you look at Apple and Microsoft, they're they're fierce competitors, but they're also great it's collaborators fun. and partners. We were yeah, talking about uh, MacBooks earlier. My MacBook has Microsoft yep. 365 on it. Uh, so, so don't overlook that because it, it can actually cost you. Yeah, and a lot of the most successful companies, if you look at their strategy, Microsoft even, you know, they did a lot of partnerships. Partnerships are huge for them. And yeah. partnerships drive growth. Over half a million people. partners. Yeah. yeah. Can't even keep counting anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Andy, one last question for you. I guess we'll kind of throw in a bonus here. And I know that, you know, you work a lot with startups and uh, doing mentoring there, but is there anything, you know, specific to startups um, or those startup entrepreneurs, another golden nugget that uh, that you'd like to offer to them? Uh, I guess a golden nugget. Um, yeah, everybody wants to know about growth hacks, right? <laughs> so I think, um, you know, I've had the privy of learning about a lot of great software tools through Nacho Nacho. I think there's a lot of tools out there that you could use for growth hacks. Um, you know, especially, you know, I'm still a big believer in uh, cold outbound email. If you're hitting the right people and you're actually offering some value to them, um, a lot of those can convert really well. Um, so there's a lot of great tools like Apollo.io that a lot of people are using to get leads. Um, I have another favorite one called SalesQL. Uh, so if you go to SalesQ as in question, L as in Libra. Uh, dot com. They have a Chrome extension tool. So if you go to somebody's LinkedIn, you can grab their email address. And sometimes just a really well-crafted pitch, especially if you're trying to raise money or get a very important strategic partner partnership and you don't want the spray and pray tactic, uh, getting a getting their work email address and sending them a personalized email could surprisingly get a really, really strong results. Um, and that's very critical, especially for early, early stage startups. Don't be afraid to, you know, as my friend Coco from a uh, uh, what's this? Uh, Nimbler. Uh, so that's another good uh, software to get leads from. Uh, so Nimbler.com. Uh, um, don't be afraid to knock on doors. Don't be afraid to cold call people. Uh, don't be afraid to send a very personalized email. Uh, you know, know a little bit about your target and send them a good pitch that that doesn't look like just some generic email. And you'd be surprised. You know, those early partnerships, investors, uh, you know, partners that that might be a part of your partner-led growth strategy or customers are very, very important to getting getting established. So don't be afraid to put in the hard work to actually, you know, send a very personal email or pick up the phone and dial. Awesome. Awesome advice. Well, there's one other thing that uh, as you continue to to share your insights that jumped into my mind, and that is a great resource, uh, the innovators method by Nathan Furr. It's an awesome book. We actually developed a course with Nathan. He's a Stanford PhD. Um, but we built a course with them, the Innovators Method, and any of our members on our platform can get the first week uh, of that course free. But it, it's so much in line with a lot of the advice that, that Andy talks about with yeah. the minimum viable product and just be really smart, ask a lot of questions, obsess over your customers' challenges, because uh, that's where you're going to be able to build the, the products that provide the most value. Andy, thank you so much for your time, man. It's great to, to chat with you. Thanks for sharing the insights. And man, we're going to have to pull you on the show again sometime in the future. This was fun. That'd be fun. And you know, your, your product too. I, I mean, I want to recommend to people, definitely learn from the experts. Uh, so it sounds like a great toolkit for people to subscribe to because, um, you know, a fool learn, learns for, from his own mistakes. <laughs> uh, a wise person learns from other people that have already made that mistake. But uh, there's still some operating experiences you need to understand failure yourself and why. But um, 
a good growth hack too. My final tip is to definitely check out all the great resources that you guys uh, relentlessly put together to help entrepreneurs be successful. So you don't have to fail as many times as I had to figure it out. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Well, thanks, Andy. Thanks for spending some time with us. We'll see you soon. Awesome. Thanks, bud. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Partnernomics Show. Don't forget to subscribe to get the newest episodes at thepartnernomicsshow.com. Special thanks to our sponsors, Iolite. To learn more about Iolite, visit iolitepro.com. And Partnernomics, the science of partnering. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics courses, coaching programs, and consulting services, visit partnernomics.com. See you on the next episode.